0: through uh, verse 21 father we are truly blessed to be called your people sometimes lord we're so consumed with our own thoughts and we're so consumed with things that we're facing that we don't always stop and acknowledge just how blessed we are the fact that you have chosen us and that we are your children and we are saved and uh, we have an eternal home your spirit lives inside of us you provide for us you protect us What a wonderful blessing it is. Tonight as we open the scriptures, I pray that you would help us to see the truths in your word. May we hide those truths in our hearts. May it change us more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the workers across the street and the children in their classrooms that you would just uh, teach them and bless them. God, we want to ultimately glorify you in everything we say and everything we do so lord i do pray now that you would be with us help me to teach give me clarity of thought and uh, again we we look to you for guidance for wisdom and understanding i ask you for your help in jesus name we pray and amen i want to speak to you tonight on the subject of the song of isaiah the song of isaiah one of the first verses i learned as an adult was Isaiah 26.3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in you. And uh, that was one of the first verses I learned. This passage of scripture is a song of praise that will be sung during the millennial kingdom. Now remember the millennial kingdom is when Jesus Christ the Messiah rules literally on this earth. We believe in a literal kingdom. There are people who do not believe in it. They believe that it's a spiritual kingdom, that it's in all of us, and it's uh, it's, uh, active right now. I believe the Bible teaches it is a literal kingdom, and much of the prophecies point towards that kingdom. This is prophetic in nature. It's interesting to me. Only in the Bible will you ever find someone writing a song now about what will happen in the future under the inspiration of the Lord That will be sung by the redeemed. Isn't that fascinating? I think that's fascinating. So, this is a song of praise to be sung by the redeemed in the millennial kingdom of Christ. How many of you know the song Amazing Grace? Right? Have you ever looked? I think there are literally seven or eight verses of Amazing Grace. Now, you know, in a Baptist church, you only get like one, three, and four, or, you know, they skip around. You, it's a, it's, you know, I don't know if it's a sin or what if you sing all four verses of a song. But this song has six verses. There are six verses in this song. And it's interesting. The songs that they wrote in the Old Testament and they sang, they had meaning. It was not geared towards more of motivating the flesh To serve the Lord, it was geared towards motivating the spirit to genuinely worship from a heart of love and gratitude. Many of their songs revealed things about the Lord. You know, today we sing about the Lord, but their songs revealed His attributes, something that man could see and understand and know of the Lord. And so it's very, very striking This song, as we go through, if you'll just listen to it and as we we go through all six verses of the song and then we'll hopefully have an application and it won't totally bore you to death. Verse 1 of chapter 26. The first verse of the song is a song of salvation. Isaiah writes, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. This gives us a hint at the time. It's going to be during the millennial kingdom. And where it's going to be sung, it'll be sung in Jerusalem where the kingdom is headquartered. Jerusalem. Most uh, prophet scholars would tell you, prophecy scholars would tell you, when it comes to prophetic things, keep your eyes on Jerusalem. Keep your eyes on Jerusalem. Very important city. And so this is a song that will be sung in the millennial kingdom in the land of Judah. Notice what they say. They will sing... We have a strong city. Now, in this first verse, it is a song of salvation, but there are two illustrations of two cities, a contrast between two cities, if you will. Notice, we have a strong city. That city is Jerusalem. We have a strong city. God, notice what he says, will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. In other words, God will be our salvation. The walls... And the bulwarks, you know what a bulwark is? It's a, it's a big uh, protection, a big wall of protection. Open the gates, he says in verse 2, that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. Now this is fascinating because there's going to be a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, and when he establishes the kingdom, it will be uninhabited. It will be God that opens the doors, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will lead his people into the kingdom. This is a song of salvation. Isaiah knows full well what he is saying. He believes in the Messiah. He believes that the Messiah will rule and reign from, from Jerusalem. And it will be Christ who leads them in to the city. He will open the gates. That the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. Here is this verse I learned. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. How many of you have heard the word shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, right? In this text, literally in the Hebrew, it is pronounced shalom, shalom. It is coupled together, pronounced twice. Perfect peace is shalom, shalom in the literal translation. That's what the Hebrew says. And by doing that, he is amplifying that it will be a, a, a kingdom of peace ruled by the Lord. And he says, Who, he will keep you in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Those in the city, the righteous, their hearts, their trust, their faith will be in the Messiah. Not in any earthly government not in any other person, only in the Lord. Look at verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. In verse 4, three times we have the name of the Lord. Now, two times the tetragrammon is used. What is the tetragrammon? Uh, tetragrammaton, excuse me, is the Yahweh. What We would say Yahweh, but it actually in Hebrew it is comprised of capital letters, no vowels, capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital H. That is the proper name of God. Interestingly, uh, there is some who would teach, and the the, uh, Hebrew scholars understand this, it is actually interesting because the first two letters, capital Y and capital H, are the sound... That's made when you inhale. And the last two letters, WH, are made when you exhale. A crying baby, a crying baby, from the very first time it breathes its breath, utters the proper name of God. Interesting, huh? Yahweh. We, English people, because we've got to have vowels, right? How many of you grammarians are sitting in here? Where are the vowels? We have to have vowels. So what do we do? We put an A and an E in there. Yahweh. But the Tetragrammaton is Yahweh. That is it. And it is the name of the Lord. Now, why does he use, it's translated in our English version, Lord, Lord, but in the midst is a shortened version. What is ya? What is that? Well, the Hebrew scholars teach that that is, the abbreviated version points to God in creation. Now think of this. What he says is, trust in the eternal, everlasting, ancient of days, Lord, forever. For in the Creator... The Lord, Yahweh, is everlasting strength. Do you see that? Isaiah knows that the only hope of salvation, the only strength they have, the only protection, the only provision they have is in the Lord. And thus, this song, the song of salvation, focuses on the Lord because in Him is everlasting strength. He turns from the first city of Jerusalem to the second city, Babylon, and he says this in verse 5, For he brings down those who dwell on high. If you're careful in the Scriptures, you will see, all throughout the Old Testament, stretching all the way into Revelation, the contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon. The contrast between good and evil. The contrast between God and Satan. Satan is not equal to God. He is not really an opponent. He is an enemy, but he's not anything opposite of God because there is none. You cannot say he's on the same plane as God. And so understanding this, and we understand Babylon and we understand spiritual Babylon, commercial Babylon in the end times, Isaiah says he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. What is the lofty city? What is the city of pride? It is Babylon. Who was it that took Israel into captivity? It was Babylon. Who is it in the last days is going to be the commercial seat of all, of all uh, evil on the earth in the end times? Babylon. Religious. Some believe the revived Roman Empire. The religious system? Babylon. The great whore, the Bible says. it's not. I'm not trying to be crude. I'm just repeating what the Bible says. It's that city. Now, what does he say about that city in his song? He, the Lord, lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down. The feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. So in this first song, the first verse of the song, he begins by revealing to us that God is salvation. It's a song of salvation. It's a song of how God's rule and reign will rule and reign over the Babylon's of every epoch and every time. The second verse, verses 7 through 11, is a song of righteousness. Look at verse 7. The way of the just is uprightness, Oh most upright. In the first song, the song of salvation, the first verse, I should say, of the song, the Lord, Yahweh, was what? He was, the, uh, he was the subject of the verse. He was the object of the verse. He's everything in the verse. In the second verse, the way of the just is uprightness. Oh, most upright. Isaiah's focuses on the most upright. Upon the Lord. Notice what he says. You, Lord, weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early for when your judgments are in the earth the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness isaiah reveals a truth that we have to keep in mind it is god's righteous judgments that teach us righteousness the means of his judgment is teaching us righteousness see our land has forgotten that our Police officers work very hard at making sure they enforce the laws and they arrest people and they take them. Why? Because the judgment, God has ordained the government to keep civility and peace, Romans chapter 13. And it is their job to exact justice upon the earth. And when they do it, it will teach others righteousness. They will learn, if I do this, I go to jail. But what does our government do? They let them go. And what is it having? It's having the opposite effect of the intended effect that God wanted to happen. Which is what? To teach us righteousness. All correction and discipline is for one thing. To make you right. To turn you around. To correct you. It's a song of righteousness. Judgment is the means of teaching righteousness. When the judgment's for in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. That's what the Bible says. And that's God's means of teaching us righteousness. Look at verse number 10. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. Why will he not learn righteousness? Because he's wicked. Hello? He refuses to learn from Others' mistakes, he refuses to learn from his mistakes. He's wicked. Do you know that there are wicked people? Someone was telling me, someone was telling me they, um, they were talking with one of their friends, and their friend is a, a believer, or so, a professing believer. said so he struggles with church, and he struggles with the Bible, and he struggles with um, the word wicked. Why would you struggle? Well, there's really not anybody wicked. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, Everyone apart from Christ is deemed by the Bible wicked. Now, you might know someone that's good that's unsaved, and they might be a pretty okay moral person, but let me tell you something. The Bible says they are wicked, and God does not sugarcoat. Why? Because let me tell you this. Someone taught me this at an early age in my life. A person without Christ in his or her life is capable of doing anything. There is no depth to the depravity of someone apart from Christ. From Christ. That's the only way that makes sense. You watch the world. How could someone really allow and be so evil as they are in this earth? They, have, they don't know Christ. They do not know Christ. So this is a song of righteousness. And the point of God's judgment Isaiah makes is so that men would learn his righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal with unjustly who's that the wicked the wicked if the wicked were in the millennial kingdom allowed to wreak havoc they would why because they're wicked do you understand that the devil does not do good at all he only disguises himself as an angel of light he only appeals and entices people he has no light in him at all he is constantly darkness and in this song The second verse of the song is the song of righteousness. Now, the third verse of the song, verses 12 through 15, is a song of peace. Lord, you will establish peace for us. It always cracks me up. You have all these nations and all these dictators that say we want peace. Well, they spell peace a little differently than we spell it. We would love to have P-E-A-C-E, peace, but they want P-I-E-C-E, which a piece of this and a piece of that until they have the whole thing. That's what they want. And that is man, that is man's agenda. And the only way that you can have P-E-A-C-E, peace, is through Christ. Notice what he says. Lord, you will establish peace for us. I don't care what uh, affiliation you are in politics and how slick the politician is, he will never be able to broker genuine peace. Why? Because peace only comes from God. Peace only comes from God. And we cannot get it. It has to be established by God. For you have also done all our works in us. James said every good and perfect gift comes from above. Isaiah on the bookend of the Old Testament says, all the good work that's in us, you've done. But oh, don't we like to take credit for what the Lord does? We're doing this and we're having so many and we're having all this and look what we've done and blah, blah, blah. Oh, my goodness. There's no peace in any of that. Our God, our Lord, O Lord, our God, masters besides You have had dominion over us, but by You only we make mention of Your name. They are dead. Who? Those earthly masters. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Every human leader that's ever lived on the face of the earth has died except Jesus Christ. Well, he died for our sins. He rose from the grave. And they didn't. And they rise up to power, all these potentates. In the Old Testament, when you read through 1 and 2 Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and you really see how cruel these kings were, how evil they were. And the song of peace says all these men who declared that they would have peace or they would make peace, they didn't because, God, you alone are the only one that can make peace. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. It's interesting. Isaiah says we will not have lasting peace until those enemies of the Lord are perished and banished. Now I'm talking about physical peace upon the earth between nations. I'm not talking about peace in your heart. Because those of us that have peace in our heart, we have died to ourselves and we live in Christ. Galatians 2.20. We've died to ourself. And he says. You have increased the nation, O oh Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. Do you realize that in Israel's existence there has not been one solid, complete year of peace without threat of an invading army or an attack from, a, from a, an enemy somehow, some way, whether it be Hezbollah and rockets fired into Jerusalem? It's only when Christ rules and he establishes that peace for them and the land is increased and the nation is increased and the Lord is glorified and the borders are expanded in the land, it's only when Christ reigns when that will happen. This is why this is a song that's sung by the redeemed in the millennial kingdom because this is what happens. He establishes peace a song of peace the fourth stanza of this song is a song of repentance verse 16 Lord in trouble they have visited you they poured out a prayer when your chastening was up on them now I want you to stop there just for a moment in our churches today we don't want to talk about repentance we don't want to talk about repentance. We want everyone to, I'm all right, you're okay, everybody's okay. We're just hold hands, sing kumbaya, light a few candles, and everything is great. There's only one problem with that. It's not biblical. Repentance is not just a something that happens one time at salvation. Repentance is continual in the life of the believer. As we encounter God's word and we encounter something in his word that our lives don't match up to his word, we repent of that. We repent of our condition. Which repentance in the Greek, metanoia is a Greek word that means to change your mind. But that's not just all it does. It doesn't just change your mind. It affects your character. It affects your outwardness. It means I'm walking in this direction. I see God's truth. I am sorry I repent and turn and go back towards his truth in the opposite direction I was going. But we don't talk about repentance. Why? Because we talk about repentance, then someone might know that we're not living like we should. And we want everybody to think we're good Christians, right? Let me just ask you a question. How many of us would want to come in here next Wednesday and up on those screens have laid out before us all of our lives and all the things in our lives that God's dealing with that we've not capitulated? Who go first? Put my hands down. Exactly. And so why do we not want to have this repentance? It's only, as Psalm teaches us and David, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Lord, against you and only you have I sinned. He was repentant after Nathan put his bony finger in his face and said, David, you are the man. When he sinned with Bathsheba, everyone else cowered down to the mighty king. Not Nathan, he stood in the power of the Holy Ghost and put his finger in his face and said, you are Wrong. David repented. Notice what he says. In trouble, they have visited you. Most often, people become repentant when trouble visits. Right? Many times when things are great and we're living on the mountain, we don't think about repentance. We're just enjoying the ride. But it's when God kicks, takes a rug and jerks that proverbial rug out from underneath us and we fall flat on our backs or on our face. That's when we start questioning and finding out, Lord, what's going on? What am I doing? What's wrong? Why is this happening to me? Isaiah pins the same words. Lord, in trouble they, Israel, have visited you. They poured out a prayer. When, when did they pray? When your chastening was upon them, verse 16, how severe was it as a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs? How many of you ladies have had babies? Can anyone raise your hand and say, before you got an epidural, it didn't hurt? Some of you got an epidural and it didn't work. I know. I'm going to say something I probably shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Thank God men don't have to have babies. Because I've heard some of you with your colds, and for heaven's sakes, if you had a baby, it would be the end of the world. And that was kind of a, a poor attempt at a joke. But Verse 17 is this, As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in pains, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O God. Lord. Isaiah knows what he's drawing on when he's drawing at the time of this writing and for year, thousands of years people read this and they had no epidural and they, the ladies had to experience this, these birth pains and it was in that pain and sorrow he equates that with what led the nation of Israel to repentance. Verse 18, we have been with child we have been in pain, we have as it were brought forth wind given birth to what it literally means we've been given birth to we've not accomplished any deliverance in the earth nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen Isaiah draws a length to pain and suffering with failure to repent this is a song we want to sing on Sunday mornings right we'll get up and sing oh Lord we hurt like a woman having a baby because we have failed to repent who's with me No, we want to sing, you know, oh, praise the Lord. And not think about it, but just hurry up and get out of there. It's a song of repentance. He moves on to the fifth stanza of this song, a song of resurrection. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Interestingly enough, this is one of the few passages in the Old Testament that allude to the resurrection. A physical, bodily resurrection. There were Sadducees who were a religious sect in the New Testament. They were Jews, but they did not believe in a bodily resurrection. Isaiah says, this is a song of resurrection because... Your dead, speaking of those redeemed, those Israel, the the Jewish believers, I should say, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they, plural, shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out. The dead. He says, This is a song of resurrection. Those who believe in the Lord, those who have faith, those who love the Lord, those Jewish believers, they will be resurrected. The earth will, pardon the expression, spew them out or cast them out. And they'll arise, and you know what they'll be doing when they arise? They'll be singing. They'll be singing. I've often wondered, you know, I uh, I would love to live long enough for the rapture to happen. Because I would think, I I would want to see the rapture. I would want to go up and experience that. Wouldn't you? I mean, I really would. And I just wonder, of course, it's going to happen in the moment, in the twinkling of night, and... I, and um, we're going to be changed and everything. And I wonder if when we too are going up if we'll not be praising in song. The psalmist said the Lord hath put a new song in my heart. And in just a moment I'll share with you the power of the song. It's a song of resurrection. As he goes through Isaiah goes through he highlights very important things about the Lord. The way he constructs his song, it's as a blessing to Israel. But if you look at it, really, he is revealing the character of God. He's revealing something to the Jewish people about God. God is our salvation. God is right, his righteousness, the second verse. God is peace. Our response to God is repentance. And because of repentance, it's a song of resurrection. And it gives the concluding verses, 20 and 21, the last stanza, the sixth verse of this song. It's a song of judgment. Come, my people, enter into your chambers. Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. Why? For behold, the Lord comes out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for her iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. It's a song... It's a song of judgment. We know for some strange reason that in the millennial reign of Christ there will be some who were perhaps born who will come up and reject the Lord Jesus Christ even though he's ruling and reigning. And at the end of the 1,000 year millennial reign From the four corners of the earth, Satan will be loosed for a little season and he will have an opportunity to garner up one last army for one last battle. The Lord will leave his habitation and he will go out and he will deal the final blow of judgment forever. That's what Isaiah is singing. Now, interestingly enough, let me just give you a little bit of application. You say, okay, great. I want to talk to you just a moment about the power and the purpose of song. We did not come up with music. We did not come up with singing. It was God's idea. As a matter of fact, I find it very encouraging when Saul, the king, King Saul, was down. What did he do? He was down and depressed. They called David to come and play music. Why? To lift his spirits. Do you know that Isaiah pulls back the curtain? We saw, and he pulled, or the curtain's pulled back for Isaiah, I should say, and we saw back then this great worship service that's taking place in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. In three parts. Why? Well, three parts Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's nothing coincidental with God. It's all, it's all intricately woven together. All throughout history, the song has been important. The psalmist said, It is the Lord that put a new song in my heart. What is it about music, and what is it about song? I'll tell you what it's about. Well, first of all, the power of a song is it reveals God. It reveals God. I appreciate music. I am not musically inclined. I'm not. I have no talents. I can't play any musical instruments. Um, at very best, I could perhaps play the radio. Um, it seems anymore, I've I got static with the radio. I don't know what's going on. But I appreciate music. I don't know how chords are arranged. I don't know how um, notes. I cannot read music. But I appreciate it. What amazes me is there are men and women who have never had formal training in music who are most talented musicians. Uh, Jim Simbla, who pastors Brooklyn Tabernacle, uh, his wife is a Grammy uh, award-winning choir. She's written many songs and has never had any, cannot read music, has never had any ounce of training. Yet, if you were to watch the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, it would bless your heart. Music's of God. He created it. Now, here's how Satan comes into the picture. What was intended for us to enjoy and to edify and glorify, edify us, but glorify God, Satan's come in and divided us. Well, I like this style. I like that style of music. Let me tell you the power of music can be negative also. You know that there have been churches split over the type of music. One, One person says, well, this is the only style of music. They can't have a guitar in church. That's what they use in the beer gardens. You know, at one time, when they had uh, organs and pianos first entered the church, the church responded the same way. Well, you can't have a piano in church. They have those in the, the bars and the pubs. It is God who has created these things. How is it Sister Vicky, can sit down there and move her fingers and it makes a beautiful noise? I mean, she can make that thing talk. It's a gift of God. Why? Because I'm telling you, music is of God. The song is powerful. Isaiah knows this. Much of Jewish festivals and feasts included singing. And if you've ever heard, I'm not going to sing it, but if you've ever heard a traditional Jewish hymn, They all have about the same kind of sound, and they just replace the words. But if you listen to it, their emphasis is on the revelation of God in the song. So when we sing songs, and we're singing, I'm just going to use an illustration, Jesus Messiah. When we're singing that, our thoughts ought to be on knowing Christ as our Messiah, our Lord and Savior. So the power and purpose of the song, number one, reveals God. Number two, it should inspire us to revere God. We've got to get back to revering God in our land. God is not some pal of ours. Jesus Christ is not someone to which we haphazardly talk of and speak to and approach haphazardly. He's the God of all glory. And in the very name of Jesus, every tongue, or every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, the Bible says. It's a holy name. And so the power of the song is that it should motivate us to revere God. Yet today, and I'm not saying it's based on one style or the other, today a lot of our songs might have been intended for this purpose, but we have allowed our flesh to make it more of how we feel rather than how we revere God, how we reveal God in our lives. Does that make sense? Isaiah has six verses of this song. And in most Baptist churches, if you would take every song that we sing on Sunday morning and sing every verse, and then we were to go to Ezra and do what they did in the Bible... Most people would not last in a Baptist church. They read from morning till midday. And the people said, Amen. We're here long, one minute over an hour and people are looking at their watches and checking their phones and thinking about, you know, can we beat them to Bob Evans? And we have an opportunity to experience the power of the song to have God revealed to us to revere Him and we miss it. The third power of the song is praises to God. Praises are vocal. I don't have to say anything to praise God. Yes, you do. (laughs) Yes, you do. Praise is vocal. It's not inwardly thinking. That's meditating. Praise is your lips are speaking truth about the glory of God. Praising God. Not praising ourselves. Praising God. Number four. The power of the song prepares us for battle. You know, most often if you study the culture in Old Testament uh, times, there was a what we call a battle cry. Has anyone heard of a battle cry? You know what a battle cry is? When they would sound the shofar and the people would assemble and when they heard the shofar, they were prepared to battle and they would attack. So is the song in the local church. It prepares us for battle. How? Because in the song God is being revealed. Our response is we're revering and praising God and that prepares us for the battle when we walk out those doors. Because it's easy in here to be around people we love. It's easy for us to be in here raising their hands and praise the Lord and sing and shout. And when we get out there, it's easy for us to fall prey to the way of the world and keep that stifled and not do it. Every once in a while, I'll be driving in a car and I'm, I'm a people watcher and sometimes it gets me in trouble and I'll be watching and this one lady, she was having a time of her life. I mean, she was, I mean, driving and on both hands at one time. I mean, and she was just enjoying it. And I thought, my goodness, why are we not like that? Get out of the way. Get out. It's not Sunday. Get out of the road. What's this idiot doing? Hey, y'all think I got a video in your car, huh? A camera. <laughs> Has anyone ever done that? Come on, I'll be honest. Amen. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate your honesty. Because she was already telling on you. <laughs> the point I want to make you is we do that, don't we? We do. And then I would like to say this. The power and purpose of the song is it helps us promote God. If I could say one thing in all of this is the church has to get back to promoting God please hear me out if anything if covid taught us anything it's taught us this we need to stop promoting programs we need to stop promoting fleshly things of ministry and start promoting the Lord Jesus Christ in our churches we moved away from that guys we really have. We we don't we don't we don't promote Jesus Christ. He needs to be our all and all. He needs to be preeminent in our lives. And when we take the power of song, how is I mean think about it? How is it I can remember songs from the 80s and I can't remember what I did yesterday is anybody else with me and some of you are not 80s you're like 60s and 50s and we'll stop there but we can remember the word to every song isn't it amazing and you can remember when you hear that song it'll take you back to that time right there was a song, I'm not going to tell you a song because it's not real good, but it always took me back to the summer and the fair and I was a kid and I loved that song. And uh, some of you think, I know that song. I'm not telling you still. But there's a power of the song. There's a song I heard the other day. How many of you have heard Beulah Land? Oh, man. How many of you, really, honestly? If, I mean, you probably, I ain't going to say that you got to love land, And I heard that song, and immediately Buta Land took me back to Camp Jerry when we, were, we had about 80 teenagers at church camp. And the week was hectic. We had workers fighting. We had kids fighting. And I'm thinking, Lord, just get me through this week. And we had a little fellow named Johnny Dishman. Johnny was special needs. And we, after chapel, would have a canteen. And down there in that canteen area, they could get a Coke, they could get candy bars and whatnot, just hang out, and it was all supervised. But we could stand up on this little bank on the hill and look down and watch them. And we were all just talking about surviving, right? The counselors, man, this has been the roughest camp we've ever had. And all of a sudden, I hear this voice, the special needs voice, singing, Victory in Jesus. And I hear kids quiet. And he sings. And then I hear one of my good friends, Matt McClung, and his beautiful voice, a cappella singing, Beulah Land. And they're like, oh, the teenagers wouldn't want to hear that. Let me tell you something. There wasn't one teenager talking. They were all sitting around. And then they started going over to Johnny and saying, Johnny, I love you, buddy, and hugging you. And before long, they started testifying. And all the counselors are standing up here except for Matt. Matt was down there singing. And we're all standing up here like, man, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know. Somebody said, "Well, little, we just need to stay here and not get involved. Just let it happen. I was like, amen. We'll mess it up. And Before long, all those kids were started testifying and started talking about how, you know, the Lord had been working in their life and they had been ignoring it, and etc. cetera. It was the nearest thing I've ever seen to a genuine revival in all my life. And we were all excited. and uh, in, in our zeal, we had a couple kids get saved, and let's baptize them. And we went down to the pool, and we baptized them in the pool. And, uh, man, it was just a spiritual day. And then I learned a valuable lesson that way. You don't baptize them without their parents being there. <laughs> That's number one. They They, they were upset because they weren't there. They wanted to be there, you know what I mean? I learned that lesson. But I'm telling you, the closest thing I ever had to a genuine spiritual revival in my life. When I hear Beauty Land, it takes me back to that time. Why is it? Because it's the power of the song. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that I, we should live in the past, but it's good every once in a while to go back to those places. There's a song that I, I love to hear it. We used to sing it when we had a choir. It was sung by the choir. I grew up at the church, and that church sang it. And it was, they sang it at my mother's funeral, the choir. Jesus is Lord. I don't remember in the choir, you always sing that. And they'd sing that song, and I remember that song to this day. It's the power of the song. And we have opportunities on Sunday mornings with people unlike me that are gifted in music, and that's, their, that's what they do for the Lord, and they come. And, and they try to sing, and we're disinterested because, you know, we're not really interested in knowing more of God. We're not really interested in revering God or praising Him or being prepared for battle or going out and promoting Him. We're not really interested in that. We want to get through Sunday so we can do what we're doing Sunday afternoon. Yet, Isaiah takes and he opens up for us the future and he shows us the kind of activity we're going to have in the millennial kingdom of Christ they're going to sing and they're not only going to sing 1 3 and 4 there's going to be six verses of this song and that song and all throughout eternity we're going to sing praises to the Lord and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so I tell you the song is extremely important it's not just a filler time in the church It's an opportunity to to reveal God to people. It's an opportunity for us to learn to revere our God. To praise God. And it prepares us for battle. It gives us a little spiritual jolt. I want to ask you this question. Sincerely. If... Sunday morning you come into church and you come in and you sat down and you saw sitting up here on the stage you literally saw the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you would honestly sing when it came time to sing? Huh? Shoot, yeah. I ain't going to be sitting back here going Jesus sitting up here watching me. Do you know the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? And he knows when we're distant. He knows when we're disinterested in him. I venture to say, I do not gamble, but I venture to say this. I think it would be a safe bet if you came in here on a Sunday morning and Jesus Christ was sitting up there and you recognized him as who he were and it came time to sing, I guarantee you, You'd sing. I don't care if you can carry a tune in a bucket or not. You'd still sing. Because that's what we're going to do throughout eternity. And right in the midst of all this, we'll go back to judgment next week, and we'll go back to the harshness of the Old Testament and Isaiah and God's judgment. We'll go back to that. But for just a moment, Isaiah pauses, and for two weeks, two weeks, He turns our attention to the importance of praising our Savior. There's no better activity we can do than with a genuine heart lift our praises to our great and glorious King. Because that's what the redeemed will do in the Millennial Kingdom. Would you join me?